0: Welcome to Saints. In this podcast, we'll be discovering and discussing fascinating insights to topics and events found in Saints, the story of the Church of Jesus Christ in the latter days. This new four-volume narrative is a history of the Restoration. You can also read it and all the material we'll be discussing today on lds.org or on your Gospel Library app. And now, Saints. I'm Ben Godfrey, and today I have two wonderful guests with me here in the studio. First, a lead source checker with The Saints Project, Leslie Sherman. Welcome, Leslie.
1: Hi, thank you.
0: And joining us again, our great friend, Sarah Eyring. Sarah has recently read Saints Volume 1 and will be sharing her thoughts and questions in our episode today. Welcome, Sarah. Hello. Today we're going to be talking about Chapter 36. It's a pretty momentous time in the history of the church. And I thought we might start with the story of Mary and John Davis. Can you tell us, Leslie, who are these people? Where are they? What's kind of going on in their world?
1: Sure. So the time period that we're in is early 1841, and we've got Mary and John Davis who are in their mid-20s, and they meet as they are attending meetings that are held by the missionaries, and they decide to join the church and get married. And so they get married in December of 1840, actually.
0: now They're in England, right? So the the 12 Uh are on their mission in England. We've got a branch meeting in London. We have people in other parts of London, but the Davises are in England. I forget, are they in London or...
1: No, they're outside. So they're more on the western side of England in Herefordshire is kind of where a lot of the missionary activity is going on. They actually live in a place called Turley, okay, um, which is outside of Herefordshire. And, you know, just newly married. And Marianne was actually a dressmaker and John was a carpenter.
0: So they joined the church. Is that right?
1: That's right. Yep.
0: They join the church, and it's just smooth sailing all the way to Nauvoo, right? Of course
1: not, nope. So (laughs) they actually host meetings at their home for the missionaries to come and preach to people because they're the only members of the church in their town of Turley. And that doesn't go well, of course. There are a lot of anti-Mormon feelings, and so actually mob members come and disrupt a lot of the meetings that they have. You know, in fact, one of them gets so violent that John actually is— kicked and thrown to the ground and beat up so badly that he never recovers from his injuries and he actually dies. So here they are. They've only been married a few short months, and he passes away, leaving Mary alone and a widow.
0: Wow. Let's listen to just a little clip from the book that that talks about that part of the story. In Turley,
2: Mary and John had faced hostility as soon as missionaries began preaching in their home. Rough men often broke up meetings and ran the missionaries off. Things only grew worse until one day the men had knocked John to the floor and kicked him mercilessly. He had never recovered. A short time later, he took a bad fall and began coughing up blood. The missionaries tried to visit the couple, but hostile neighbors kept them away. Confined to bed, John grew weaker until he died.
3: When I read this bit of the story, I felt so sad for Mary because Mary is about my age And I can only imagine being married, like you said, a few short months. And then because of the religion that we were practicing, you know, to have such persecution and to, as a result, have my husband pass away, I could not even imagine it. But I'm actually even more impressed by the strength that she has in the decision that she makes next, right, to go with the other saints back to the States
1: Yeah, she decides to leave and go to Nauvoo. And I totally understand what you're saying, too. I Myself, I just got married in January. And so thinking, wow, what would that—I mean, it's just so horrible that you're trying to start your life together as a newly married couple, and then all of a sudden your world is turned upside down. So I agree that I think it takes a lot of courage and faith for her to follow the missionaries and decide to leave her family behind. She leaves her
3: parents and— Oh, that was, uh, you're reminding me, yes, that of course there was a couple of sentences that say she went home and she said goodbye to everybody. And it didn't sound like her dad was very happy. It sounded like he had sort of curt responses to her decision to leave. No, not at all. I think
1: she was expecting him and her mother to, you know, maybe be a little bit more sad or dramatic. I don't know. I'd think that if I went to my parents and said, you know, I'm, I'm leaving. I'll probably never see you again. You know, you would expect a little bit more of a reaction, but no, he just asked when her ship was sailing. So she went to Bristol, the port in Bristol, and he asked when she was leaving and she told him, and you know, when she was at the port, I think she was expecting because her dad had asked, you know, when are you leaving? I think she was expecting them to come say goodbye to her. But no, that didn't happen. Aww. He sent lawyers yeah, to try... Yeah, this is
0: such an a awful kind of part of the story. Her dad sends these attorneys to try to catch her, basically, and keep her from leaving.
1: Exactly. And what I think is interesting is these lawyers are asking around because um, they're waiting to leave till the ship is ready. So she's in Bristol for about a week, and they're asking, you know, have you seen this woman dressed in black? Because she's in mourning, so she's oh. dressing you know, because she's a widow now. And, you know, she decides that she is actually going to put her black clothes away in a trunk and dress like everyone else. So it's almost kind of a turning of a page for her. I see that she's, you know, accepted that she needs to move on and, you know, move forward with faith.
3: That's really interesting.
0: Leslie, as a lead source checker for the project, one of the questions I think many of our listeners will have is, where does this story come from? And, And I know there are hundreds and hundreds of sources, but... Can you give us just a little picture of your world? Like, how do we know this story? Where did it come from? How much artistic license was used in telling the story? Give us a picture for what that's like in your world.
1: Sure. That's a great question. So the particular source for this story is actually Mary herself. She left a really fantastic, robust reminiscence that she wrote when she was about 50 years old. And we have all the details from the story come from her. They're coming directly from her. And so in terms of artistic license, we, we're maybe putting it in words that we use today, but all the details are hers.
0: And when we see dialogue in quotes, does that mean that it's actually a quote from the source?
1: Yeah, it's coming directly from the source. Yep. It's, we aren't making that up.
0: Yeah. So it, that that's one of the things that's... I don't know if our listeners can just understand the magnitude of Leslie's job, but it is incredible the, the work that her and her team have done on Saints to make sure that we are telling an accurate, a truthful, and an honest story. So it's awesome to, uh, to have you here with us and to talk a little bit about the contribution that you and your team have made to the project. So Leslie, we have Mary going on to Nauvoo, Back in Nauvoo, things are progressing. The city is sort of being built, coming together, and Joseph invites this guy named Thomas Sharp, who's not a member, to come, um, I I believe it's on April 6th, it's the, the anniversary of the church being founded, to come to kind of a celebration, brass band, little parade who is this guy and why is Joseph inviting him to town to kind of witness the celebration?
1: Sure. So yeah, Thomas Sharp is an interesting guy. He is actually also young. He's 20. He's, I think he's only 22 at this time. Yeah. He hasn't yet turned 23 and um, he's been invited by Joseph because he is a newspaper editor for the only non-Mormon newspaper in Hancock County. So he originally, he's new to the area himself, but he originally moved there um, to practice law, but instead decided to purchase a newspaper that was called The Western World um, in a town called Warsaw, which is just south of Nauvoo. Um, so he renames the newspaper um, the Warsaw Signal. And Joseph invited him because he needed all the help he could get from you know, the outside community and county Um, and kind of generating some goodwill and friendly feelings um, towards the saints. You know, they'd been driven out several times, and that's the last thing that they wanted to happen in Nauvoo. And so he invited him to this cornerstone laying ceremony to kind of show off the hospitality and the friendship um, that the saints had and that they wished to have. So, yeah, they pulled out all the stops. They had a parade. All the Nauvoo Legion are marching around in their uniforms. It was a pretty big event.
0: And yeah, you reminded me that they laid they laid the cornerstone for the Nauvoo Temple, so this was April sixth, eighteen forty one, pretty momentous day. And and I think the press coverage was actually pretty decent. Like he wrote a pretty nice article about his time in Nauvoo on that day.
1: Yeah, he did. It wasn't an opinion piece that he wrote. It was pretty it was pretty factual, but it was definitely favorable. It's kind of funny, I at the end of his little blurb about it, he said, we have no time for further comments this week, which almost in my mind makes me think that he maybe had other thoughts that he wasn't yet willing to share. But in the moment, he published something very favorable about the saints, and so they were excited about it.
0: I think that Warsaw Signal is not going to be the best friend of the saints.
1: No, definitely at not. At least
0: at least we got one good article <laughs> out of them. So at this time... Uh, we have this kind of nice write-up in the paper. Nauvoo is beginning to flourish. It seems like this is a moment when things are going right. And the the city council, in fact, passes a law that uh, religious freedom is available to all in the city of Nauvoo. And interestingly, probably a lot of our listeners, this will be new to, in, in that law, it even protects the right of people who today we would say are Islamic or Muslim. At the time, they used a different word. But yeah, it's for Christians, for Jews, and even for Muslims to worship as they choose um, in the city of Nauvoo. And it's at this time with kind of this is the moment when Joseph is now going to be prepared to introduce the law of plural marriage. And he does that. Can you tell us a little bit about who is Louisa Beeman and... uh, how does her story come into Saints?
1: Sure. So as true with, you know, a lot of things in the restoration, Joseph Smith wasn't given a nice blueprint of how things are to be rolled out and implemented. And Louisa Beeman was 25 years old and Joseph Smith approaches her um, and asks her to be his plural wife. Joseph actually works with a man whose name is Bates Noble, who is uh, Mary's sister's husband, Mary being Louisa's older sister. The family had been a faithful supporter of Joseph and faithful members of the church, and so that's perhaps why he felt comfortable approaching them and trusting them, really, because he's not hes not so much introducing plural marriage to the saints. This isn't something that he announces. It's He's still not sure quite what to do, and so he's introducing it quietly and starting to follow the commandment that Heavenly Father has given him, um, quietly. So he, you know, Louisa is single, her parents have passed away and they enter into, um, plural marriage together.
0: So our, our listeners will remember in previous episodes, we talked a little bit about Fanny Alger and the first, uh, recorded plural marriage that we have in Kirtland. One of the things that I just want to point out for the listeners is, if they want to learn more about Joseph Smith and plural marriage in Kirtland and in Nauvoo, there's a wonderful gospel topic essay that covers really all the details that we have. I would just encourage them, if you're interested in that, please go there, look that up, listen to it. It's been uh, translated into many languages, and it's a, it's a really great resource to get a good, uh, broad understanding. Something else I think the listeners may be interested in is... How in Saints did we choose the stories um, to include specifically around plural marriage? So, of course, we had Fanny Alger because she's the first plural marriage. Uh, We have Louisa Beeman. She's the first plural marriage in Nauvoo. And can you tell us just briefly who else was selected to be sort of representative of the known plural marriages of the Prophet Joseph?
1: Sure. So the tricky thing about plural marriage um, is that, you know, there were a lot of women who didn't share their stories. And so we don't have as probably robust of an account for everyone as we would like. Um, But we chose to tell the stories of Mary Elizabeth Rollins-Leitner because she um, was a woman who was married to another man. Her husband was not a member of the church and didn't really have an interest in joining the church. And so, you know, Mary wanted to make covenant. She wanted to have those eternal blessings. And so she chose to be um, sealed to Joseph Smith. And so she represents, you know, about a dozen women whose that was their story as well. And we have a better account of that. So that's why we're telling the story of Mary Elizabeth Rollins-Leitner. We tell the story of Emily and Eliza Partridge, the Partridge sisters, because that's almost sounded like a band. We tell their Mm -hmm. story because they left really interesting and detailed accounts later on in their life. So we have a little bit of a better idea about their story because we hear it from them. And then in terms of Louisa Beeman, who um, was um, sealed to Joseph in 1841, she's representative of a young woman who was not married, um, who entered into plural marriage with Joseph.
0: It's really helpful, Leslie, for for our listeners and for me, frankly, to understand like how these people were chosen to represent mm-hmm. different kinds of individuals who were involved in plural marriage in Nauvoo and specifically with the prophet Joseph. One of the things that's hard is we just don't have great sources about what people and specifically what Joseph was thinking. The the record is not that great. Is that right?
1: That's right. I mean, we can kind of gather that it was difficult for him. It was definitely difficult for Emma, but unfortunately in both of their cases, we don't have their personal thoughts and feelings, and we don't have a record kept of how it all unfolded in their view. Let's
0: listen to a little clip here from the book that talks about just that. Joseph himself
2: left no record of his own views on plural marriage or his struggle to obey the commandment. Emma, too, disclosed nothing about how early she learned of the practice or what impact it had on her marriage. The writings of others close to them, however, make clear that it was a source of anguish for both of them. Yet Joseph felt an urgency to teach it to the saints, despite the risks and his own reservations. If he introduced the principle privately to faithful men and women, he could build strong support for it, preparing for the time when it could be taught openly. To accept plural marriage, people would have to overcome their prejudices, reconsider social customs, and exercise great faith to obey God when he commanded something so foreign to their traditions.
3: Something that the reader's might be interested to know about is in further chapters, how much more are we going to get into this? Because in previous chapters, we've kind of talked about a couple of stories briefly uh, in terms of their relation to the polygamy topic, but how much more are we going to talk about it? How much do you ask readers to defer to the sources? What is that like?
1: Well, we'll see a few more storylines. So like I, I mentioned earlier, we'll see uh, Mary Elizabeth Rollins-Leitner, we'll see um, Emily and Eliza Partridge. Um, I think readers will be happy with the balance that we strike. We're not trying to overwhelm anyone with, you know, just all this polygamy that is really a heavy subject. Definitely. But the good news is that we've got sources and, you know, the ones that are available um, on the Church History Library's website, they'll be linked. And so you can click on those and um, explore for yourself if you feel so inclined. But um, I think one of the nice things that Saints does is that it kind of allows you to see how polygamy fits in to the story of the church and to how it plays out in Nauvoo. And you just kind of see how it's not necessarily dominant, but just that it's ever present a little bit, maybe in relief society and in you know women's relationships with each other it's just a difficult time and something that you know some people were aware of and some people weren't and i think you'll be able to see that as the story unfolds
3: i really appreciate the topics for that purpose because of course this narrative is so huge and includes so many interesting Things that uh, it's great that of course you have to keep going with the narrative. you if you're reading in the chapters, you can spend hours on these topics that go really in depth on, right. the, on interesting um, you know topics. Right. Yeah. It's
1: we'd like to be able to tell everyone's story, um, but unfortunately the sources don't allow that, and just the book we can we don't want to give you a huge totally. textbook to read. So hopefully enough that you get an idea for what's going on and you feel like um, it's a representative of polygamy. That's awesome.
0: Let's come back now to uh, our good friend Thomas Sharp. turns out that uh, John C. Bennett, who is a member of the church, is uh, elected to the county court. He he gets an influential position. And
1: And he was actually appointed to the county court, and that's kind of the problem. You know, Nauvoo is growing. There's a lot of um, Mormon citizens. And so people from an opposing political party are kind of feeling like, you know, These Mormons are going to take over the whole system and they're going to be the ones running, you know, running things and the other um, citizens and the other party isn't going to be represented.
0: So when this happens, Thomas Sharp writes a nasty editorial or more, and uh, we have Joseph writing a letter to Thomas Sharp asking him or telling him to cancel his subscription. Can you tell us a little bit about that letter? I,
1: I think it's, I just think it's great. So you know Thomas Sharp is writing calling into question you know Joseph as a prophet and also he's he wrote something else that was a little weird talking about the saints from England saying that they were coming over to Nauvoo and writing back home to other saints that were still in England telling them how terrible it was and questioning Joseph as a prophet and you know so Joseph of course doesn't take too kindly to this and he writes just this short little piece asking to cancel a subscription. He says... Can you
0: read it for us? Oh, I'd love to. It's too awesome not to. Sure.
1: He says, sir, you will discontinue my paper. Its contents are calculated to pollute me and to patronize the filthy sheet. That tissue of lies, that sink of iniquity is disgraceful to any moral man. And this is my favorite part. He says, yours with utter contempt, Joseph Smith. (laughs) And then P.S. Please publish the above in your contemptible paper. I love Yeah. (laughs) He
0: he is... Not pulling any punches with Thomas Sharp. And he tells him, take my nasty gram and publish it in your rotten paper.
1: <laughs> I mean, you know, he had tried to be friends with Thomas Sharp. He had him over to his house for a turkey dinner. I mean, I think you can't expect everyone to be your friend, but this just seemed a little harsh.
0: Yeah, it's, it's sort of over the top. And, and Thomas is just going to become a thorn in the side to the saints in Nauvoo with the, with the Warsaw signal. On a different front... There's so many things happening. We need to remember that Orson Hyde is on his way to Jerusalem. He's been trekking across Europe. Why is he going there? What is what's his mission? And and can we can you tell us a little bit about what he's up to?
1: Sure. So Orson Hyde, in 1840 or so, he had had a dream that he was going to um, travel through Europe. And visit the Holy Land, so he says this to Joseph, and Joseph agrees that this is a great idea. And so Orson Hyde and John Page are, you know, assigned to head over, and to dedicate the Holy Land. And so he heads off and um, does that. He leaves in March of 1841, and John Page doesn't make it as far. He stays in the in the states, but. Orson travels across, spends a little bit of time in London, and then makes his way down, kind of following the path that he had seen in his dream and um, eventually arrives um, at Jerusalem.
3: Was he hoping that he could preach there or what was his purpose in going?
1: So he did want to preach to the Jews and he did preach along the way. He sets up meetings with um, some leaders. He writes to them and um, sets up some meetings while he's there. Oh, that's cool. Yeah.
0: If the readers happen to look, if you have the printed book, you can see we have a map that shows Orson Hyde's kind of trek. And uh, we tried to be faithful to where he actually went on his journey. Right. Some, of, some of it's overland, some of it's via water. But there's a lot through Europe that he's actually trekking overland. It's, it's an amazing journey. And then, of course, probably something many of our listeners and members are familiar with is he dedicates the Holy Land as a gathering place for the Jews. Right. Let's just listen to a little clip here, actually, from the book that talks about that dedication.
2: Incline them to gather in upon this land according to thy word, Orson prayed. Let them come like clouds and like doves to their windows. When he finished his prayer, Orson made a pile of stones at the site and walked back across the valley to pile more stones on Mount Zion as a simple monument to the completion of his mission. He then began the long journey home.
0: So this is pretty incredible. I mean, here we are, 1841, and here's this lone member of the church building a monument in Israel. And I think for many of us, we see the modern state of Israel as a fulfillment of his dedication of this land. It's an amazing story to me.
1: Oh, yeah, I think it's totally amazing. And I don't know, just somehow picturing... That time, it just kind of blows my mind that someone is over in Israel, and I think it's really cool that he also understood that really the work of the gathering of um, these people would be done primarily by the, the Jews themselves, and it's just amazing to um, also think about the presence that the church has today in Israel, and, you know, how that kind of all started back um, in 1841.
0: There is a topic on this. It's called the dedication of the Holy Land. I'd invite our listeners to check that out. Um, but I do want to read you just one little piece of that because I thought it was amazing when um, this is concerning the, the BYU Jerusalem Center. And I want to just read what Elder Howard W. Hunter at that time, who was in the Quorum of the Twelve, later the president of the church, uh, what the topic says. Elder Howard W. Hunter of the Quorum of the Twelve, who had played an important role in establishing these Latter-day Saint institutions in the Holy Land, taught that the monument to Hyde's prayer did not mean, quote, that we favor only the aims of the Jews. The church has an interest in all of Abraham's descendants, he reminded his listeners, that, quote, Jerusalem is sacred to the Jews, but it is also sacred to the Arabs, end quote. He concluded, quote, both the Jews and the Arabs are children of our Father. They are both children of promise. And as a church, we do not take sides. We have love for and an interest in each. The purpose of the gospel of Jesus Christ is to bring about love, unity, and brotherhood of the highest order. I love that President Hunter brought together everyone. Because ultimately, the gospel is a gospel of peace. And it affected me I'd never read that before. I didn't know that when the monument to Orson Hyde's dedication was dedicated that we talked also about the people in Palestine who are not Jews and I was I was grateful to know that. So I'd encourage our listeners just check that out because the topic has much more you can learn from as well.
3: So Leslie there are a couple of difficult Topics, you know, for for some readers and maybe for fact checkers, there are interesting topics that come up in this chapter. What was it like as you were searching through sources and kind of really having to face these issues head on, not only as somebody who's presenting them to the public but also as a member of the church yourself? Sure. Um, yeah,
1: it's you know, I you know, being truthful, it's it's hard, you know, especially when you're looking through all these sources, and especially I remember when I was source checking. Um, this chapter and other chapters that will follow, it's, it's heavy. And when you're just looking at that, its um, it seems a little overwhelming and you start to kind of, you know, wonder, you know, why? And, you know, it just brings up a lot of questions. But, you know, I find a lot of comfort in the sources themselves. In terms of polygamy, we do have accounts where, you know, these saints themselves, these women and men, they struggled with it, you know, they describe, you know, being, they preferred death or, um, they preferred, um, you know, the, you know, they just preferred the grave or, you know, preferred not to have to enter into this. And, but then they all, not they all, but they describe feelings of peace. And, you know, I think that that's something that we can ultimately find too. Um, we can, you know, do our best to use the sources to try to understand and, you know, revelation, but, Ultimately we just trust that Heavenly Father is in charge and he knows what's best for us. And you know, we don't know all the answers, but in Saints we've tried to present these stories in a way where you can find peace and answers to your questions. And hopefully that helps. That's really awesome.
0: Leslie, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate your insights and all of your fantastic work on the project. And uh, thank you out there for joining us and listening in today. To learn more about the Saints Project, uh, to listen to this chapter, and to find the topics that we've discussed today, you can always go to saints.lds.org where you can see our latest updates, uh, videos, and more. And you can, of course, uh, read Saints in the Church History section of your Gospel Library app. Finally, to download this episode and to subscribe, visit mormonchannel.org. I'm Ben Godfrey. Thank you for listening. Thanks for joining us today for Saints. And don't forget to read more of this historical narrative on LDS.org or on your Gospel Library app. Join us again for our next episode, where we'll once again discover fascinating insights of church history found in Saints, the story of the Church of Jesus Christ in the Latter Days.